All right. Welcome, everyone. This is another episode of Courageous Conversations. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mahan, and my guest here is Jeremy Nachik. And what's really cool is that he's actually a repeat guest. He was our very first guest on this conversation. Uh, it was back right after the election. He and I had a conversation about Donald Trump. I'm a leftist progressive who absolutely hates Donald Trump. He's a conservative Christian who supports Donald Trump. Um, so that was a very interesting conversation. But we're actually coming back together today to talk about something we actually do agree upon which is nice. We're going to be talking about racism. And in particular, we'll be focusing this episode on talking about how Jeremy's views about racism have changed over the years. Um, because that's a really hard thing to do to, you know, admit your views were wrong or even admit your views were incomplete and to really modify your stance on something. And he's gone through that process. So he'll be sharing with us kind of what it took for him to see the light and change his mind on a lot of different issues, um, as well as, you know, his advice for uh, if there's someone in your life who doesn't recognize the reality of racism, how to maybe open their eyes um, to it. So uh, I guess to get things started, Jeremy, let's just clarify when we're talking about racism, like what, is, what does that even mean to you? Um, well, uh, to most people, I think uh, they'll take racism as a uh, an outward act of hatred uh, for a certain group, a certain skin color, something like that. Uh, drawing a, a swastika on somebody's garage, breaking out somebody's car window that's a different color than you. Um, these outward things that we can we can see and give an examples. But um, I think the point that we need to get to and the point where racism is really defined is um, any passing thoughts we even have in our mind. I, I don't think it necessarily always has to even do with hatred. Um, I think it can just be beliefs that were brought up on, raised on, um, that get ingrained in us early in childhood even. Um, you see a uh, black and white kid playing together when they're very young. They don't even see skin color, but why is it 10, 20 years down the road um, nine times out of 10, that black person is in prison now and the white person has a successful job and they don't see each other as the same anymore. Um, I think that racism is in our mind. It's, it's a more than a hatred, more than just a belief. It's uh, a thought of they're different than me when we're all actually the same. And I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah. You know, I, I totally got the point there, but even your your choice of phrasing there about nine times out of 10, the black guy ends up in prison, the guy, white guy ends up successful. I even think the choice of words there that your brain just presented to you in this moment was a little mm -hmm. bit racialized, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're trying to make that, as you're struggling to try to find a way to make, make your point. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I totally agree, right? The unconscious effects that we all have from growing up in society that views black people a certain way and views white people a certain way, generally mm -hmm. views white people as normal and black people as kind of the exception, right? Right. And that views whiteness as preferred. Like, it's mm -hmm. okay to be black, but there's right. a subtle undertone of like, it's better to be white, you know? Right. We'll, accept mm -hmm. you, we'll tolerate you when you're black, but it's definitely better to be white. Right. And yeah, a lot of what I've seen, right, is people aren't even aware of it, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I've done this all the time. I won't get into it here, but like I have examples where like I've had different emotional responses to people of different races. Like yeah. Latino guy walks up saying, Hey, can I have a jump from my car? And I had this like nervousness yeah. and this mm -hmm. like doubt and this suspicion where a white person right. walks up and like, hey, can you jump my car? And I'm like, absolutely I can, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not choosing that response. That is a right. deeply ingrained response that my body felt, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think we're definitely on the same page here. And that's a good thing to point out because in my experience, when people start talking about, oh, you know, racism is a big, big problem, 
they're talking about specifically what you mentioned in the beginning, right? Right. Like consciously held beliefs of black inferiority and like consciously mm -hmm. felt emotions of hate and outrage. Right. Exactly. Right. So racism is a lot more than that. So I guess to kind of get, get this kicked off, let's now talk about your views on racism. Can you talk mm -hmm. to us about how you saw racism in the first stage of your life? And then we'll start to kind of follow the journey um, and how your views evolved. Right. So um, when I was growing up, I think that I I was more inclined to believe that racism was was some kind of form of pure hatred for for another based on their skin color, and that's that's all it was. I didn't see beyond that. I didn't see that there could be different examples. Um, I think a big reason why is where I grew up and the forms of racism that I could outwardly see. I grew up in Bellflower, California. It's a, a little town that's surrounded by Compton, California and Long Beach and places like that. Now there, the population density uh, based on uh, origins and stuff, white people are definitely a minority there. So I had to learn early on to accept all races uh, as the same. I, I always felt myself that, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And that's because growing up, I seen the outward forms of police brutality, for instance. I, I seen numerous times my friends I'd be going to the skate park with and stuff. And we'd be skating there and a police officer would come and all of a sudden they have the black kid on the floor and questioning him and handcuffing him while I'm sitting there getting to do whatever I wanted. And maybe I was the one who was in the wrong even, but yeah. they come there and the first thing they see is a black person there and they go for that. And most of the time it was a white officer that did it. Uh, I seen in school, teachers treating uh, people of color differently than the white people there. Now, in my school, again, the white kids were a minority compared to other races, but still the teachers uh, chose to belittle, uh, be belligerent to people of color. And I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend why that was. But that's what I seen as racism, those those outward forms almost that that come from a hatred in the heart towards these people. And when I grew up and got older, especially after I moved up here to Montana, I started seeing the smaller things, the the walking down a store aisle and seeing a person of color walking the other way, maybe he has a hood on or something like that and the white person totally going and avoiding them. Now, do I know that that person hates the other person just because of the color of their skin? I don't know that. I, I would like to think that they don't, but it's still a form of racism. Just, just that passing thought of they might do something to me. Whereas if the same person in a different color comes up to them, they might have a conversation to them. They might nod. They might say hi. They might show a friendly gesture. And I think that's where my views changed is, is I seen the smaller things, the smaller examples here in Montana more and more and more. 
and it led me to believe that this is a a much larger issue than than I ever thought it was when I was growing up. I thought it was uh, selective issues in certain situations with people built on hate. You know, something else you mentioned the grocery store thing. This is something that I noticed a lot more pre-COVID when I was actually in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed. So in Colorado, we don't have a particularly large black population, but we do have a lot of Latinos. Um, mm-hmm. So I noticed, like, if if we were in a, in, a, in a grocery store aisle, and there was like a Latina woman and me, kind of like heading on the same course, right? Almost every time, I would keep walking, and she would like move out of the way and make way for me. Mm-hmm. But if it was like a well-dressed fifty-year-old white man, I would very frequently make way for him. And it's just like, and I find myself noticing, wait a minute, wait a minute, like why? What is going yeah. on in my brain that tells me that it's right that the Latina woman stands down, gets out of my way so that I can own this space. Right. And that same part of my brain tells me oh, I should probably let this 50 year old white man own the space and I can like defer. And not that mm-hmm. happened every time. Right. And it certainly wasn't conscious, but I just started to notice, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> right. I'm noticing a pattern here. And you know, truthfully, right. You could argue that pattern lived in me and I didn't move out of the way for Latina women, but you could also argue that that pattern lived in the Latina women and they like right. very quickly my way just because our society in general has given us this idea that like white people own these spaces and people of color are guests in these spaces mm-hmm. right exactly totally unconscious but like mm-hmm. there it is um so i'm curious about something you know these examples that we're mentioning right mm-hmm. individually there's really none of these examples you could prove had anything to do with race right right maybe the right. teacher would just addict to that student because they and that student have history. Maybe mm-hmm. that police officer was a dick to that kid because the police officer was having a bad day, right? Like right. you can always find on in individual instances an explanation other than race. And I know mm-hmm. so many, so many white people, probably most commonly white men, who will use that to deny racism and say, you right. don't know racism. It could be some other reason. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be immune to the effects of like aggregated data all piling up, all telling the same right. story. And because each specific one doesn't mean anything, they say it's not racism. Why do you see it differently? Why do you think when you saw those things happening, you interpreted it as part of a larger pattern where when most white people see that happening, they say, oh, it's just a one-off instance. It doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, well, I think uh, part of it is um, my upbringing uh, early on uh, being taught Christian values and, and things like that, trying to see everybody is the same. You know, if, if I believe that God created all, and that he all created us, he created us all equally, then I should see everybody as equals. And so I think uh, early on when those things are ingrained in our mind, um, it, it has a lot to do with upbringing. And so when, when we're passing by people in the store, when, when we're thinking of, of things that they might be different based on skin color, um, I think that the it all goes back to my upbringing and my roots there. And, and that's the, the biggest thing that I can think of as to why I might see uh, different. So when, when you're picking out examples and other people are saying, well, you know, it, it might be something else. I think we're always looking for an excuse. And the reason I didn't look in, for an excuse is very simple fact in my mind i reasoned that let's say it's not true for a second well what's the harm in assuming that it might be 
what what bad thing will happen if we openly admit okay maybe it is racism now i think that only good can come from that if we take a minute and say okay maybe i don't think it's racism but benefit of the doubt let's say that it is i think only good can come from that whereas if you take the opposite and try to argue it away and say well it could be just that he was having a bad day it could be this it could be that i think that always opens the door to the fact that it's going to lead down a bad road because let's just say that it is racism but i'm trying to explain it away then a person is openly going to get away with racism and things are never going to change so I think that's where the difference comes in is from my upbringing. I just thought, you know what? Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's let's just assume that that's what's going on and and what what bad could come from it. Only good can come from it because even if not everybody is racist, we can change one person's heart, one person's mind and one person's views. And that's enough for me if I can change at least one person. Yeah, I'm going to push back a little bit there and say it's not your conservative Christian upbringing because I know a lot, lot, mm -hmm. lot, lot of conservative Christian people who mm -hmm. do not see things that way, who absolutely right. heavily on the, you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. And if mm -hmm. you, know, you can't prove an individual instance, then you can throw away all the data and aggregate. Right. So it almost seems like, you know, you, you, your, your, your concept of harm seems interesting, right? I almost think there are people out there who see that if we grant to people that yes, racism is a big problem, they see a lot of harm in that. I don't exactly know what that harm is, mm -hmm. but there are people out there who are like, man, if we start admitting there's a racism problem and addressing a racism problem, I'm scared of something's going wrong, right? Right. So I would prefer to do the opposite of what you did. And let's play it safe and just assume that it's not there. Because I know if we deny racism and mm -hmm. if we just assume it's not there, everything's going to be just fine, right? Right. Where if we admit there is racism, ooh, stuff could be bad. Where you're mm -hmm. almost coming up the opposite lines. You're saying, no harm in recognizing racism, even if occasionally we're wrong and we, you know, identify it when it wasn't there right. and see real damage in, uh, in not recognizing it. So that's interesting that mm -hmm. that may, that may be a big part of the difference, right? And which yeah. one, which one do you see as harmful, right? Which one is right. the no harm, which is the danger? Right. And I think part of it too is, um, it, take, somebody that gets injured, for instance, and, and use this as an example, you can have somebody that has just a, a minor scrape on their arm and, oh, that's not bad. You know, you can basically just ignore it. It will scab over and it's going to be fine. It's going to be healed up. And that's how most people view racism is some little wound, some, something that's not that big, not that big of a problem. Whereas for me personally at least i see it as this gaping hole in somebody's chest where they need to go to the er right away and get emergency surgery and get that patched up it can't wait it needs to be done yesterday you know uh, i see it as that i see it as this huge wound that's life-threatening and when you start to see racism for what it is widespread big wound something that needs addressed right now, I think that's when you start opening your mind, like I do to the benefit of the doubt that the thing that what's it going to hurt to address it, even even if we have some instances where a person is not 
racist or or not doing something that is outwardly racist even if we say okay maybe it is i don't think there's harm in that because we're at least opening the conversation then maybe we'll find out down the road that it's not and great if it's not then we go on with our daily lives but what if it is you know that's and and me putting myself in a person of color shoes and then saying that but what if it is that's that that speaks to me that speaks to my heart you know uh because i don't have to deal with all these problems i i have the benefit of of not having to deal with that it almost makes me wonder right for all those people out there who are the, the racism deniers right what mm -hmm. do they see the risk of calling something racism right. Without mm -hmm. that, oh, in this particular case, it wasn't. Because that seems to be a real risk these people there are terrified of. Like, we can't possibly say something is racism if we aren't 100% sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what it was, right? Where you are like, it doesn't bother me if we call it racism and somehow it turns out, you know, at the end of our lives, we meet God and find out that, oh, that particular instance wasn't. Who cares, right? It still right. started the conversation. It still raised awareness. It still got our heads in the right place. So it does seem like there are people out there who think there's a real risk to admitting mm -hmm. racism anywhere where it may possibly have been something else. And it makes you wonder, what are they scared of, right? right? What is the threat of confronting this racism issue that makes it so dangerous that you can't possibly risk calling it racism? That's, that's exactly what I would like to know. You know, I, <laughs> I, I liken it to um, when Hitler rose to power, what if, what if people, instead of saying something, what if they just kept saying, oh, well, you know, that's not anti-Semitic, you know, he's just having a bad day. Maybe, maybe somebody just pissed him off in this group. And so he's just going after them. What if we just kept doing that? Where would the world be right now? If, if somebody didn't finally stand up and fight back and say, no, that's totally discrimination of a certain group. It's anti-Semitic. It's anti-color. It's anti-gay, you know, all these things that Hitler was. What, what if we never address that? You know, then then what problems would there be in what, what would he have accomplished? So I think that's an important thing to think of is how bad can it get if we just keep letting it fester and grow without addressing it? Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things you mentioned that changed about your views, right, is, you know, it, early in life, you thought racism was just kind of a, a localized issue that was just bad in your area. Mm -hmm. and certain people who are racist. And since moving around the country, some you realize, oh, shoot, this is everywhere. And it takes right. a lot of little forms. Um, do you have any like, I don't know, evidence you've leaned on to convince other people of that? Or is there anything you learned that really helps solidify that lesson in your mind, that this is actually a big problem? It's not contained just to a few jerks? Um, well, I mean, I can always point to instances that that I've seen. Um, but just a, a numbers wise type of thing is um, one of the things that that really convinced me that um, fellow conservatives, um, they would constantly argue the fact that more white people are killed every year than than black people, for instance, by cops. And so I started thinking about that and I wanted to do some digging and some number crunching on that and figure out is this true because if it is okay maybe maybe it's not as big of a problem as as i'm starting to think it is but boy was i wrong when i started digging into the numbers i 
it it totally solidified what I was believing that it's a way bigger problem than I was thinking at first. Because when you look at the population, I went by the the 2010 census numbers. Mm-hmm. I took those numbers and then I took uh, the whites versus blacks killed by cops yearly for, I think I did 2017, 2018, 2019. And when I looked at that, I was shocked at per capita way, way more, uh, especially young black males were killed by cops every year than white people. And, and it was shocking to see that um, fellow conservatives that I thought were my friends thought that they had the same conscience and, and beliefs as me, that they could outwardly basically portray a lie. They, they know what they're saying. I, I think that most of them know what they're saying is, is a misguided truth that that they're trying to push away a problem that they know is there but they don't think is that serious and and i think it's hugely serious so that that's a piece of evidence that really i think a lot of people can take from do your own research you know look into it if if you think even if you think this isn't real challenge yourself you know just just go and do a little bit of research and try to find points um, maybe that that prove your point that it isn't this widespread try to find it because i can almost guarantee you you won't you're going to find the opposite and i think that's the biggest thing is people don't take the time to do any research on it and that's why they might think it's localized or a, a smaller issue than it actually is And when you share this data with your conservative friends, how do they respond to it? Um, well, I mean, I'll give a perfect example with with my mother. Um, we have, over the past year, we've had some really hard, tough, courageous conversations. Um, we have sat there and we've both been in tears at times talking about this kind of stuff. Now, um, you know, I wouldn't, say that my mom's a racist or anything like that. I wouldn't say I am, but I think we both have those things in our minds sometimes that can lead us to do racist actions sometimes. And so I started sharing this stuff with her, for instance, the, the per capita for the population thing. And she was shocked, you know, she was beside herself knowing that she'd watch her conservative news, she'd uh, read conservative things, listen to conservative talk radio, and she always heard the point that more white people are murdered every year than black people. There's not a problem there. It's not a problem. And when I shared this with her, she was beside herself. She, her first thought was, why, why would they be saying that? Why, why would they come out and keep saying that if this is such a problem. And so that's, I think that's when her opinion started to change on it. So she was, she was shocked when, when I first started talking with her about it, but then after the initial shock, she was very, very open and, and wanted to talk more and more with me about it and get more of my insight on certain things. Um, 
I can't say the same for all my conservative friends, um, but I know maybe because she's my mom that that plays a little bit of a part in it. But I think most most conservative friends that I have, they're open to at least hearing from me on this issue. I think in large part because I'm conservative. If I was a liberal and it was coming from a liberal friend, I think they just shut me out to begin with. Um, so I, I think finding some, some common ground to identify on and then bringing the conversation this way definitely helps. If you can find uh, some kind of common belief, common agreement on, on something at least, yeah. then you can start to have a conversation about something that that's important and maybe you disagree on. Is there any other like, you know, hard data points that you found that have really shown conclusively that this is a widespread issue that you shared with people? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that um, a lot of it is my life experiences more than just hard analytical data because I, I think in a in a lot of senses it, it's really hard to put on paper so many of the problems that we have you sure. know yeah. you, you can go out and, and walk down the street and see somebody avoiding somebody else or being having some kind of fear in them about another person where if they were a different color they wouldn't have that but that doesn't transfer to paper. We, we don't have those kind of measuring tools to say how many people walk around every day and have that feeling. So I, I think there's definitely examples out there. I, I mean, just look through US history and some of the dirty, uh, horrible things that we've done to outside groups, you know, indigenous groups, um, taking Africans from their homeland, uh, making them slaves. I mean, we have all kinds of examples. Even though I love the U.S. and I think it's a, a storied history, it's marred with, with these dirty kind of almost secrets that you don't want to put out into the limelight. But I think those are the things that you can look at that show on paper that Yes, we have a real problem here. You know, when when we have a country whose foundation was built on the backs of black people and, and they built up this country in chains and had uh, years and years and years of being locked down in chains, where at the same time, white people had these opportunities to grow and flourish and have families this whole time and be free. That's a huge problem. And that's documented in our history. Anybody can open a history book and read it. And so if our country started with that and we haven't addressed that and those issues, then yeah, there's a big problem there. Yeah like rediscovering those hidden secrets in our history has mm -hmm. been a very eye-opening experience for me in 2020. Like right. most white people, I didn't know a damn thing about Tulsa and Black Wall Street and any mm -hmm. of that. 
I, I can't remember the examples, but you know, I've re I read a particular article, which is really good. It was kind of laid out like maybe a dozen different of these little pockets of hidden history, which all mm -hmm. had basically the same theme, right? Black people started finding success for themselves and white people used murder and violence to squash yep. that. And it's exactly. like, oh my God, this was never mentioned before. And you know, yeah. Even to this point, I, I guarantee you, I only know you know five percent of the hidden history gems that are out there that I could oh, yeah. that were hidden from me. Um, mm -hmm. Some things for the listeners, and even for you, Jeremy, in this you know what work you're doing with your conservative friends and your mom to look at. Mm -hmm. And actually, for everyone watching this right now, whether you're watching it live or watching it recorded, um, please leave comments of any of the like hard data style evidence that you found to kind of yeah. academic racism. Um, and then we can all learn from this. So I learned because um, my wife is a doula and a lot of the training that she's done, the way black people are treated in the healthcare system, particularly labor delivery mm -hmm. rooms, is truly appalling. I don't remember the exact numbers, so go ahead and go to Google for this, but right. look at the difference in infant mortality for black babies and white babies. Mm -hmm. It is obnoxiously higher, like four times higher for black babies, even when you control for things like income or you know substance abuse of the mother or anything mm -hmm. like that, I think would affect those things. Um, black babies die at a much, much higher rate, except right. I read a different article, except they found that that difference disappears when the black babies are cared for by black medical staff. So just oh, in wow. case you thought there was something about black people that made them die as infants more often, no, mm -hmm. that difference disappears when it's black caregivers. But when right. black babies are given to white caregivers in hospitals, they die, and this is across the whole country, right? They die, I don't know, two times, four times, whatever, more often. Mm -hmm. So again, that one's really hard to deal with. Also, black women similarly have two times the rates of dying in childbirth as white women in hospitals. Again, right even when you control for other factors like pre-existing health conditions or whatever that might influence that. Mm -hmm. So that's an area to do some research that would help that I've heard of. Um, black businesses and black business failure rate. Um, I, I heard like during the COVID pandemic, black businesses failed at like, I don't know, five times the rate of white businesses. Right. But even across the board, black businesses fail more often. And then also tellingly, black people have less access to investment and loans and venture mm -hmm. capital. Something like less than 1% of venture capital funds goes to black women who, you know, are businesses that are run by black yeah. women, right? So again, you got to ask yourself the question, okay, is this because white men are just naturally better at starting companies or is there <laughs> something else going on here? Right, exactly. Those are the big ones that come to mind at the moment. But again, for all you guys watching this, leave comments of kind of what we should be researching. If we have friends we want to convince of right. what should we Google <laughs> to find yeah. that data? Because I know, again, everywhere you look. Um, oh, another good one. Um, they've done research with black sounding names and white sounding names on job applications and white oh, sounding yeah. names get callbacks twice as often as black sounding names. Mm -hmm. And again, after these surveys are done, they'll, they'll ask the interviewers, hey, do you mind hiring a black person? They say no. And they'll ask them, when you made these decisions, you make the decision based on race. And they'll say no. So again, it's all unconscious stuff, right? Right. Just to see a blackish name and not be all that interested versus seeing a whitish name and be like, oh, yeah, this person mm -hmm. sounds right. Right. And and these might be people who never consider themselves racist and they can say, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but they they inwardly somewhere in their mind have something there that that clicks and and makes a difference in, in comparison. And so many of us don't even notice it on on a day to day basis. So that that's Im important things. And yeah, definitely. I love um, people to comment with with evidences and stuff, because I have a lot of friends who I would love to try and convince of these things. And especially 
my conservative friends, you know, so many times they say, I want to see it on paper. I want to see cold, hard facts. You know, that's, that's conservative talk is they, they want to see the numbers. They want to see facts and not just uh, word of mouth type things. So that's, that's really important to me is to, to find more of those things. I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction here, Jeremy, based off of precious little data. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I'm in the last episode, I think two weeks ago, I did an interview mm -hmm. with a, um, a white guy who does not think racism is a problem, right? He very much thinks it's just like a few assholes and that's it. It's not a systemic issue. Mm -hmm. um, and in the conversation, he said, absolutely, I need empirical evidence that it was racism. Without empirical evidence, I'm not going to take some anecdotal story that, oh, this guy was treated badly because you don't know. Was it racism? Was it not? Right. I presented to him some of the empirical data I just shared with you about, you know, black outcomes and, you know, in hospital rooms and business mm -hmm. and all this stuff gave him the empirical evidence he wanted and his response was you know you just can't trust that data right i mean you never know who's the one commissioning the study and were they manipulating the data and you, right. you never know who to so, you know i generally just don't trust anyone mm -hmm. now suddenly he said give me empirical evidence he gave me the evidence he says no nah, i don't trust those sources and so mm -hmm. i asked him what sources do you trust do you do you trust you know nonpartisan groups do you trust universities do you trust and he's like nope nope there are no groups out there that i trust because anyone can manipulate data anyone can put out false data so it doesn't Matt, who the hell presents the data, whether it's a government agency or nonprofit or a university, I'm not going to trust them. Right. So then it was like, okay, well, where are we left now? Because suddenly evidence doesn't do it. Anecdotes doesn't do it. What's left, right? So my uh -huh. prediction, Jeremy, is when you bring this stuff up, what you're going to hear is, I can't trust that data. It's probably right. falsified. Mm -hmm. Because again, it really seems like there's this willful, I don't want to believe it. So if there's some possible way I can find a way to not believe it, I'm going mm -hmm. with that right right so we'll see i mean i don't know your friends from adam and again i i have very few data points but in my mm -hmm. limited experience it's been when people first start with shutting down your stories saying i need data then you give them data then they shut down your data saying i don't trust your sources and then you're kind of dead in the water because there's not right. much you can do other than anecdotes and data right yeah yeah i i totally agree there and i i think that the biggest thing when when i see so many people that just don't want to face this is because they know it's a huge problem, that it's a gaping wound. It, they they know somewhere inside them and they're, they're pushing that down and suppressing it because if we start to address it, yeah, it it's probably gonna open a lot of cans of worms. You know, it's, it's gonna open our world to harsh realities that maybe, maybe grandma sitting there 95 in a retirement home used to be a racist and and uh totally hate somebody just based on their skin color and you don't want to see grandma like that you want to see her as this caring old lady who is nothing but um smelling of cookies and reading you stories you know and talking about the good old days so i think that's the problem we face is people are scared to rip off the bandaid. Um, they're, they're fearful for the unknown because we've, we've never had a society that in the U S at least that has openly talked about this and addressed it like it should be addressed. We we've had, um, glimpses of it. We've had people try to do that, but I think as a whole, we've never ripped that band-aid off and people are always scared of the unknown 
What do you think people are scared of, right? These racism deniers, what, if we really decide to tackle racism and face it head on, what do you think they're scared of? Um, to be honest, I don't know because it, me personally, as, as a fellow conservative, I'm not scared because I feel like it's going to open the door for great things, new possibilities, and um, to start healing, to start um, having more compassion towards everybody, uh, to, I mean, I can't think of a bad thing that would come from it other than somebody having to admit, A, that they were wrong, which in this day and age, people somehow don't want to admit that they messed up and they might be wrong about something. Mm -hmm. And two, that they might themselves have to admit that they, at some point in their life, did some form of racism. Sure. And, and I think those are the, the two biggest things. I, I think it part of it comes from our own selfish thinking that me, 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 it's about me. And, and this problem is so much bigger than that. But I think that's what people are scared of being coming to terms with the reality that they might've had racist thoughts at some point or another or racist actions. And so they don't want that to come to light and that they don't want to be wrong. They want to be right about their point. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, you know, we haven't gotten into too much. We don't have a ton of time to go into too much detail, but you told me before we started this that you reversed your position on the Confederate flag, right? You yeah. said it was great, it was okay, now you hate it. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that feeling of going, oh shoot, I was wrong. And at that mm -hmm. point, you have two options, right? You either like open the door to that possibility of I was wrong and you start doing more research or right. you close it, you lock it, you bolt it and you throw on extra defenses to say, nope, 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 never gonna admit I was wrong. So mm -hmm. for you, when you start having your first glimmers of doubt about the Confederate flag, what did that feel like? And, and, and why do you think you chose to open the door further to those doubts instead of a lot of people who just slam that door extra shut and never let those doubts come close to them again? Right. Well, on, on that one, I can definitely in part um, speak to my faith and how it played a part in it is I look back at something like the story of Jonah and the Bible mm -hmm. and being so hard headed and just he was wrong and he didn't want to be proven wrong. So he kept fighting against it and yeah. it just kept getting him in more and more trouble. And you see that all over in the Bible. The, the, the children of Israel kept on fighting against God's commands, God's things. And it just kept going worse and worse for them. I didn't want to be caught in that same situation. I didn't want to deny something that might be truth and have it go horribly wrong for me and spiral deeper into a rabbit hole um, where I can't get myself out of. So that's why when I first started thinking about it and thinking that my view might be wrong on it and presented with some evidence, I didn't shut it out because I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be that guy that's, that's written about later on that look at how foolish he was. If he just would have done this and admitted he was wrong, it would have been so much easier. So I think that's, that's what happened there. And 
So my, my views on it was, uh, at some point in my life, I had a Confederate flag hanging in my bedroom that said rebel on it. And I thought I loved it. You know, I, when I rode motorcycles, I had a, a Confederate flag on my vest and I thought it was all about, you know, Southern pride, even though I wasn't from the South, I was Southern California. Um, you know, I, I thought that it was about rebelling against the system, um, rebelling against, uh, you know, death and taxes and things like that. When I started doing research, I found out the ugly truth. And, and the biggest thing for me was the hard evidence that the charter signed for, for the declaration of secession and to go to war against the Union was for one reason only stated in that article was because they wanted to keep slavery. And I had never been taught that. I, I had never heard that in school, um, which you would think is important, especially in, uh, in my school system where there was a lot of people of color. You would think that that would be a great thing to teach them is look, this is what happened in history. So let's change it. But no, it wasn't taught to us. It was hidden away from us. And it's one of America's dirty little secrets. So when I, when I was presented with that and, and thought about that, then the big thing that opened my mind was not even racism. It was the fact that I was flying a flag for a losing side of a war that tried to secede from the country that I love. Technically, in our constitution and our rule of law, all those people should have been put to death for treason. <laughs> they committed treason against the United States. So them just being able to live after all that was a gift from from the president and from those in power in in the union and when i started thinking about that I said, why would i want to fly a flag of of a of a losing side who supported racist ideology and fought against the very country that i love and the freedoms that i hold dear um you know i think that touches a special spot especially for people who support our military for instance they they always say that they're over there fighting for our freedoms we wouldn't have what we had today if they didn't fight for that we'll support the patriots that fought in the civil war on the union side why are we going to support the ones that were fighting against freedom that wanted to keep people in change so so that's what really changed my whole mind on that and now the confederate flag just Oh, it irks me. It makes me sick um, in, in more than just just racism, but just a general it's I mean, it's against yeah. our country. It's about as unpatriotic as you can get. Like, it'd be yeah, really hard. unless maybe you exactly. put like uh, a British flag saying we never should have <laughs> we never should have left Britain to begin with. That's exactly. Beautiful. But outside of that, yeah, Confederate flags about as, as unpatriotic as you can get. Mm -hmm. So when it comes, so I'm curious on these issues that you've change your position, whether it's a complete reversal, like the Confederate flag, or even just an evolution of your views, like on racism to recognize how widespread it was. Mm -hmm. How do you go about kind of in front of the people 
who used to know you as someone who believed X, how do you almost come out and say, hey, uh, I don't believe X anymore. I actually believe something different. And I was actually right. wrong. And actually, you're wrong, too. And like, because that's the big thing for a lot of people, right? It's not only a matter of an internal issue of I can't admit I was wrong, but an external thing, too, to like go to everyone that you've always agreed with and suddenly say, hey, I no longer agree with you guys. I used to be part of the in-group, but now I'm part of the out-group. Like, right. How, how do you do that? How do you manage that? I guess the emotional side of, of that. Right. Um, so I think that for me, um, when I think about it, I, I, I pride myself on honesty and integrity. Those are two big traits that I espouse for myself that I always want to be. Um, I'm always striving to be better than, than yesterday. And so I don't think for me personally, that it was that hard to admit to myself that I was wrong. But I think the hardest part is like you said, coming out to, to your friends and telling them that not only were you wrong, but that they're wrong too. Because if, if, I found out that I was wrong on my belief and they all believe it, then they must be wrong too. They sure. can't be right and me be wrong. It doesn't work like that. So um, when you're talking about that to friends, you have to be prepared for that conversation for them to go, wait, so you believe that? So, oh, that means you think I'm a racist now. That means you yeah. think I'm part of this thing. Well, I'm not going to say that they're a racist, but I'm going to say that, yeah, you need to do some more research like I did, because look what I found out that this is wrong. We've been taught wrong. We've been lied to. The truth has been hidden from us and, and swept away. And it's this secret that, that most people don't know. So I think, um, it's tough but if you want to be honest with yourself, I, I think most people in this world um, will will try to say that they're a good person. Most people, when they're judging by their own standards, they think they're good people. Um, and if we think we're good people, we have to be honest. I mean, if you point at somebody and say, Hey, that person's a liar. Well, you don't think they're a good person. And if they're a liar, um, so are we going to lie to ourselves and lie to our friends? Or are we going to, we're going to come to the reality and, and face the music that, that we were wrong about something. So for me personally, it was tough, but it was so worth it in the end because I know that I'm staying true to myself and for my faith and, and the faith that I have in God, I'm staying true to God too. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get better every day and, and be more like him. And mm -hmm. if I'm going to be more like him, I can't go and say, no, I wasn't wrong when I clearly was. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that everyone believes they're a good guy right and that they're good people and that they need mm -hmm. to believe that and i think the, when 
when you hold the limited view of racism and racists that we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Throw bricks through the windows of black people in your neighborhood, right? Like right. that was racist. When you call someone racist, it very much threatens their view of themselves that they're a good person. And they feel like right. they're going to question whether or not they're actually a walking piece of shit or if mm -hmm. they're actually a good person, right? right? Which I think is why people resist it so much. Like, don't you dare call me mm -hmm. racist, right? Right. People feel like that is like the most terrible thing you can call them is a racist. Mm -hmm. Did you ever go through that where you had to like say, wait a minute, I'm a racist. Wait a minute. Am I a bad person? Or for you, was it always obvious that like racism's in all of us and you can still be a good person and have racial bias affecting you, right? Right. Well, um, see, that's an interesting one because I actually, um, I worked with a, a ministry for a while and, and my mom worked with them for years too as an executive assistant where their, their main goal is evangelism. And, and the way they do evangelism is to convince people uh, that they aren't good people. Uh, measuring themselves to God's standards. And so in that same aspect, when when it came time for me to say, I might have racist undertones, I might not be a good person, it was easier for me to admit that than I think um, some other people. And the main reason why is because I don't see myself as good. Um, because I... I worked with this group and I, I read through the Bible with, with a new mind, basically with a new set of eyes and, and found that when it says that our best works are like filthy rags, uh, in front of God, now I believe that. And so, Hey, I made a mistake. Um, I can own up to that and say, wow, I'm, I wasn't a very good person in that point, but but I had the comfort of knowing that, you know, I'm never going to be a great person. So, so I think that helps me, but, but there's others who, who definitely don't share my faith. Uh, they might be atheist, agnostic, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, whatever the case may be, they might not share my faith, but I think that we can all at some point or another pick a time in our lives where, oh, that wasn't good. We weren't a good person then. Um, whether it was telling a lie to your mom or dad when you were young about stealing a piece of candy or um, bullying a kid in, in grade school. What, you know, these little examples mm -hmm. we can pick from in our life and say, I wasn't a good person then at, at that point in time. Well, let's do that now. Uh, say, wow right there, that belief that makes me not a good person. Let's change that. You know, if you, if you don't believe like I do and you believe you can be a good person, we'll do it then. Let's, let's admit that we were bad there and be better because of it, be better the next day. It's interesting. I would certainly use different language to describe it, right? The language I'd use be more like you can be a good person, even though you do bad things. But right. I think the concept is the same. You need to get comfortable accepting your mm -hmm. flaws. Yeah. Whatever language and framework you use, you need to be comfortable with saying, sometimes I F up, right? <laughs> sometimes yeah. I do bad things, I think bad things. And you need to get comfortable with that. And if you're not comfortable with that, then yeah, it does become very difficult to admit it does. This kind of racism is a thing and I'm a part mm -hmm. of it, right? Yeah. So that is interesting. Huh. Which actually 
if, if someone's in a state, and I honestly think this probably is a, a bigger factor than even we've uncovered this conversation mm -hmm. where, you know, they, they have this insecurity about their own self-worth, insecurity of their own. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Right. right. They don't have that confidence. It becomes very important that they like fend off all um, attacks on their sense of self. And again, yes, you're subliminally racist. You're part of a racist system is an mm -hmm. attack on your sense of self, which right. means that the most ineffective tool we could use on these people is shame, right? Mm -hmm. Shame these people. They suddenly have to double their defenses to protect their own fragile self-image. Right. right, right. Which again yeah. is unfortunate because typically when the left engages the people they disagree with on the right, they are heaping shame and insults on these people, hoping that right. these shame and insults will get through. Where in reality, that just makes them batten down the hatches and double the defenses. You know, yeah, makes it harder for these ideas to get through. Right, and I've, um, you know, I've been on the receiving end of that um, from a few people on the left, including even uh, family members, uh, and you know, it doesn't feel good. It does, it doesn't feel good when you're shamed constantly, when, when you're made to feel, um, inferior and, and feel like you've, you've always been this screw up, um, and things like that. So I think that we need to be careful with our words. And when we're trying to make a point, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in it and carried away that we forget that the, the face on the other side of the conversation is a human, that, that they have a heart and they have a soul and they have feelings that, that we're not just talking to a collective box, you know? Um, so I think that's important is, is the humanity in all of this being able to say, I don't want to convince somebody to prove I'm right and they're wrong. I want to convince somebody because I want to fix the problem, you know? So. Yeah. I could go on forever about focusing on the impact you want to have on someone versus focusing mm -hmm. on what feels fair about right. how we communicate about whether we're communicating in such a way that makes it easy for people to open their minds or whether we're communicating mm -hmm. in a way that makes it much more likely they close their minds. Right. Um, but yeah. Okay, well, you know, we're, we're up on time here. Um, obviously, we could keep talking forever on these mm -hmm. topics. Fascinating um, to hear about this. But anyways, thank you, Jeremy, for this conversation. Um, of course. With our previous conversation. Um, you are very... Uh, a unique person, although I'm finding from this podcast that most people are much more unique than I expect, right? Definitely. You know, here you are talking about, you know, systemic racism and white privilege while wearing a Trump hat. That doesn't right. fit <laughs> typical raw in our minds of right. people. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that. I appreciate your openness about your experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And I appreciate, you know, you, you doing everything you can to talk to the conservatives in your life. Um, yeah. Curious. How have you had any success getting anyone? Um, I guess you said you, you had an impact on your mother. Is anyone else you can think of who maybe has had their shifting or their, their thinking shifted by, mm -hmm. by you when talking to you? Um, you know, I, as of yet, not much, but I'm hopeful. Um, mm -hmm. I've had a, a few conversations with some friends that, that haven't ended on a sour note. And, and I see that as a small victory. Um, there's still so much more to do, but I definitely, um, from the conversations that I've had with my mom and from her viewpoints changing, that excites me to know that it's possible. Um, so I, 
as of yet, I haven't had anybody else, you know, really dramatically like change their viewpoints or their mind. Um, but I, I see success in the future for that. And, and I look forward to that for the day that, that other, other friends of mine can, can look at it and say, you know what, this, this exists. I was wrong. Um, but I'm on the right side of it now. I'm thinking the right way. And I think that we can march forward together and, and combat this and, and get it to the point where maybe our children can finally grow up in a world that, that this doesn't exist, that it's all in our history books and not played out in front of us today on the street, you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for this conversation, my friends. Great talking. Thank you for having me.